Uh, hey, welcome this morning to Covenant Church. If you don't know me, my name's Weston. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning we are uh, diving headlong into the book of Exodus. So if you would go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, which is where we're going to pick up in a little bit. We are going to be in the book of Exodus uh, for uh, the next season. And uh, if most of us are honest, we have a somewhat fraught relationship with the Old Testament in general. And uh, if you grew up in the church, it's quite possible. Uh, you may have experienced this thing where you feel like, to some extent, you know kind of what happens in the first three quarters of the Bible, but then you actually read it, and you realize that a lot of it is very foreign to you. And you realize that what you were taught as a kid was perhaps maybe an edited version of the Old Testament that was maybe scrubbed of a lot of the sex scandals and the violence and the talk of bodily fluids uh, that we find in the Old Testament. And so you may read through the Old Testament and go, what do I do with this? You know, how do I handle this? Dr. Tim Mackey, who I love, uh, says that many of us think of the Old Testament in the same way that we think of a weird uncle. Go with me here. Mainly that he is in our family, and so we're supposed to like him, right? Uh, that, that every now and then on holidays, we have to spend time with him. And uh, at first, he seems normal. Like sometimes he gives us gifts. Sometimes he's really kind. Sometimes he says things that are wise. But then the next thing you know, he's suddenly talking about something very strange or gross or violent. And, and so if we're being honest, we feel like we're supposed to like him. But at the same time, we don't really want to spend a lot of time with him because he makes us uncomfortable. And that is the way that many of us feel about the Old Testament if we're being honest. Adam and Eve, Noah and the animals, David and Goliath, we can get on board with that stuff. But here, even just a few chapters into Exodus, we're going to read an account of Moses' wife cutting off her son's foreskin and touching Moses' feet with it so that God doesn't kill him. <laughs> and that's the point where many of us just kind of peace out, right? That's the point where we turn over to what Jason just read in 1 Corinthians 13, and we go, love is patient, right? Love is kind, where nobody's talking about foreskin and feet in the same sentence, right? We want to read about that. So here's the thing. I would submit to you this morning that if your relationship to the Old Testament is to just kind of avoid it, that that's actually a huge mistake, because the Old Testament not only has the potential to enrich the way that we see God himself, I think it also has the potential to shape who we are as followers of Jesus as well. So, so reading the Old Testament is not primarily just an intellectual endeavor. No, it is the action of a worshiper who wants to know everything about the person that he or she is worshiping. And if there is anyone that is on display in the Old Testament, it is God himself. And the goal, and I think you need to hold this in your mind, the goal of studying the Old Testament is not that we would understand everything about God. For example, I don't in any way understand things like why God would send his only son to die for me. I, I've turned my back 
on God. Like I've rejected God at times in my life. I have not lived up to his holy standard. And yet for some reason he sent his son to die for me so that I might be reconciled to him. I would be lying to you if I told you I understood why he would do that. I don't understand why God didn't just like end this whole thing a long time ago, right? Because that's, that's the way that we think. But that's not who he is. And so the goal here, even though we will gain some understanding, the goal here is not that we would understand everything about him. I think the primary goal is that we would know him and what he is like and be obedient to him. That we would know him and what he is like and that we would be obedient to him even when we don't fully understand him. Last week, Luke walked us through the five major covenants that are found in the Old Testament. And these covenants are significant for a variety of reasons. For one, they teach us, again, a great deal about what God is like and what he desires of us. Namely, to repeat, that we would be obedient to him. The covenants also point us to Christ because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And Jesus' blood initiates a new covenant that doesn't strike down the old covenants or abolish the old covenants, but instead fulfills or completes the Old Testament promises. And so for our purposes today, the covenant promises are significant because um, these, these promises that God made to Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, they take center stage here in the events of Exodus because this all happens because God remembers the promise that he has made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Today we're going to look at the primary human character of Exodus, which is Moses. Moses is one of the most significant figures in all of Scripture. His life and example factors heavily into the pages of the Bible. In fact, Moses is in many ways a foreshadowing of what is to come in Jesus, and we will see this as we walk through Exodus. But before we jump into today's text, I want to kind of set the historical stage uh, for where we are and, and what has happened up until this point. And we're going to do this by starting with uh, that person I mentioned just a minute ago, Abraham. Uh, Exodus is the second book in what is known as the Torah. Uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, known as the Torah, or you may sometimes hear it called the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word for these books. Pentateuch means book of five. Uh, These are not necessarily meant to be encountered as totally separate books, but as a unit of five books. You will sometimes hear them called the books of the law. Um, If you're launching into Exodus... With that in mind, if you're launching into Exodus with no context for what comes before in Genesis, then you are missing some incredibly important pieces of information. Primarily, you're missing the stories of Abraham and his sons. So let's talk about Genesis for just a second. Uh, Genesis is interesting because of the way that the story is presented. Uh, The first 12 chapters of Genesis are primarily about creation, And God's relationship 
to this newly formed human race. And there are some significant conflicts that take place very early on. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the Tower of Babel, all that stuff happens in the first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus. Um, But what's interesting is once we pass chapter 12 and we move on, what we actually get is the story of one family Abraham and his descendants and the promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants. And um, one scholar says this is strange because of the way that this story is constructed. You would never tell your own story in this way. Like if you wanted to tell somebody your own personal story, you wouldn't go back to the founding of America, right? You wouldn't go back to the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower and setting up shop and the first Thanksgiving. And then you have George Washington, right? And then people sign the Declaration of Independence and there's the Constitution and you walk through all of that stuff and then you go, and then Weston was born, (laughs) right? That would be a really presumptuous way to tell this story. And yet that's exactly what Genesis does, right? Genesis is leading us to the point where we go, and then there was this guy, Abram, who was called out of his homeland and was given this incredible promise by God. Abraham has some sons as well, as you may know. You remember the song. He has many sons. (laughs) His first, or actually second son, but his first true biological son with his wife Sarah, the son that God has promised to him, is named Isaac. Isaac's second son is named Jacob. And there are a lot of interesting stories that come along with this very dysfunctional family. Uh, that we read in Genesis. But this is the lineage through which God has chosen to fulfill his promises, not just to this one family, but he says to the whole of creation. Because this family will be a blessing, he says, to the nations. And so you have these three key forefathers of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is actually the one who is renamed by God, Israel. And so when we start talking about the people of Israel, we are in the most literal way talking about the descendants of Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons multiply over time. Their clans grow. Ultimately, these become known as tribes. So you've maybe heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then from these 12 sons, for our purposes today, we want to talk about two of them. One is named Joseph. The other is named Levi. Now, Joseph is significant to this story. And if you remember the the story of Joseph, it's fascinating. Joseph is hated by his brothers They're jealous of him. They're jealous of the fact that his father, Jacob, maybe loves him more than the other sons. And so what do they do? They sell him into slavery. And they tell their father that he's been killed. And over the course of time, in an incredible story, Joseph goes from being a slave to becoming one of the most prominent officials in the nation of Egypt. So Joseph's story is significant, not just because of the story itself. It's significant because this is how the family of Jacob gets to the nation of Egypt. 
It's through Joseph. Joseph actually saves the nation of Egypt from a famine that was coming, and the family of Jacob, which at that point numbered about 70 people, they have to leave where they are and come seeking refuge in Egypt. And guess who happens to be in charge when they get there? This lost son, Joseph. So Joseph saves his family, and he saves the nation of Egypt. His brother Levi is significant to us today because it is from the lineage of Levi that we get Moses. And we get Moses' brother, who we will learn about later, Aaron. Aaron is the first high priest of Israel, and the word Leviticus, which is the next book in the Torah or the Pentateuch, comes from the root Levi, and we talk about the priestly class that comes from the lineage of Levi. So today we are focusing on Moses and his significance to this story. By the way, 400 years pass between the time of Joseph and Levi to the time of Moses. And a lot takes place during those 400 years. Namely, the Israelites multiply like rabbits. Uh, As I said, Jacob originally came to Egypt with around 70 people in his clan. By the time Exodus, the actual Exodus itself occurs, when the people actually leave Egypt 430 years later, there are approximately 2.4 million Israelites in the nation of Egypt, which is roughly the size of Houston. Isn't that crazy? 400 years. So the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he looks at this enormous group of people and he says, we have to control these people. Otherwise, they're going to rise up against us or they're going to pick up arms with our enemies and they're going to overtake us. So 2.4 million people become slaves in Egypt. And you might think, how in the world is it possible that 2.4 million people could become slaves in one country? And yet for comparison, in 1860 in America, on the cusp of the Civil War, there were 4 million African slaves in our country, which boggles my mind. More slaves in America than there were even in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Hebrew literature, which is is what this is, is fascinating because the Hebrew writers do very little to like develop characters. Rather than telling us what characters think or what characters feel, or in many cases, even without giving us a lot of backstory for where people come from or what their family was like, Hebrew literature is actually far more concerned about what people do. In fact, we get very few physical details about characters as we walk through the pages of Scripture. And if we do get any physical details, it's because those details are critical to the story itself. So, for example, uh, with the story of Joseph, we learn that Joseph is handsome. And that's important because Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Uh, In the story of Jacob, Jacob has a brother named Esau. We learn that Esau is hairy, right? Why is that important? It's important because Jacob puts on animal hair and comes in to his father Isaac pretending to be his brother Esau so that he can steal the blessing of his father Isaac. Remember I told you this is a a dysfunctional family. Uh, Later we learn, for example, that King Saul is tall. But that's really only important because we learn that David is short. So this is fascinating to me. 
By and large, the Hebrew writers are only concerned about what these characters do. And in many ways, they refrain from moralizing or from telling you what is right or wrong. They kind of leave that up to you to figure out. Sometimes they will tell you if somebody is good or bad, but mostly they're concerned with what happens. So with all of that in mind, let's go to Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So, so we pick up here in the midst of an infanticide. And if you're just keeping track of all the similarities between the story of Moses and the story of Jesus, you can start here. Moses survives a decree that all babies, baby boys, be killed. Likewise, Jesus and his family escaped the decree of Herod that all male children under the age of two be killed. And by the way, where does Jesus and his parents escape to? Egypt. So as we jump in, here's what we're going to see right off the back. I think, I think this is significant. Women play a huge role in the first two chapters of Exodus. Uh, These two Hebrew midwives that we just read about, they fear God, they oppose Pharaoh, and they rescue countless children. And, And we're obviously supposed to see them as being really significant here, not only because of the fact that we're told on multiple occasions that they fear God, but also because we get their names as a part of this account. Now, now this is notable because at no point in all of Exodus do we ever get the names of the actual pharaohs who are in charge, who are much more significant figures in this story. But these two Hebrew midwives, we know exactly who they are and what they did. They feared God. And um, I think part of this points to the fact that God is far more concerned about obedience, about us following his will, about us being loyal to him, about us desiring to please him first rather than desiring to please other people, Uh, far more concerned about us being uh, people who follow God even when it is challenging or difficult or hard. These women were willing to do what they knew was right even though their lives were more than likely at stake, even though they were directly defying the decree of Pharaoh, their loyalty is to God. And I think they're kind of held up here as an ideal for us going into the book of Exodus. And, and in many ways, we can compare these midwives early on to the actual nation of Israel that we will find later on in the wilderness. And we will see them as rocks 
of obedience and rocks of faith compared to the uh, Israelites once they get out of the nation of Egypt. Let's read on in chapter 2. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now again, I want to take note of the fact that thus far, women are the heroes of this story. Moses' Moses's mother hides him in violation of the law. Moses' sister, who we later learned is named Miriam, she helps her mother hide Moses in the reeds and then stands off at a distance to watch what happens. And then you have Pharaoh's daughter, who is obviously defying the decree of her father by bringing this child to live in her house. I mean, this is really incredible stuff that's happening. And, and what an ingenious plan, too, on the part of Moses' mother. I, I, I think some of us, our perception of this story is that Moses' mother, in, in just a, a place of like futility and not knowing what to do and not wanting her child to, to die like in her own home or something like that, that she puts him in this basket and then like pushes him off and sends him down the river to God knows what. But that's not at all what happens here. If you read it closely, it says, no, 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 she, she very strategically placed him among the reeds at the river bank. This wasn't a, we'll just send him down the Nile and see what happens to him. No, no, no. His sister is standing at a distance, watching, protecting, guarding. And, and guess who just happens to come there to the river to bathe? The daughter of Pharaoh and the baby is crying and she can't. Do what her father has decreed, right? No, she welcomes this child into her home. It really is an ingenious plan on the part of Moses' mother. And, and then, oh, here comes Moses' sister. Oh, do you need somebody to nurse that baby? Just happened to be here, you know, walking by. I heard the baby crying. Who am I going to go get? Oh, I, I've got this one. I know somebody that can nurse this child. And, and what's so cool is Moses' mother then gets paid Right, by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her child. Phenomenal. So if the story of Moses were a play, this would essentially be the end of the first act. And one author points out, and I think this is interesting, the fact that Moses' life is like characterized by Exodus. It's characterized by Exodus, and, and we've just witnessed the first Exodus in Moses' 
life, this exodus from the home and people of his birth into the home of Pharaoh himself. Not unlike the story of Joseph, by the way, who we talked about just a minute ago, forced out of his family by his jealous brothers and ultimately winds up in the court of Pharaoh. We then fast forward several decades into the future. Look at verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, uh, Stephen gives this account of like the history of Israel leading up to the time of Jesus. And he talks about Moses. And he talks about the fact that Moses went through this process of, again, like going through an exodus, of again fleeing. And he flees to this region called Midian. And Moses at the time, according to Stephen, was around 40 years old. So we've, we've gone through a significant portion of time from a baby in a basket to a 40-year-old man killing an Egyptian and then fleeing uh, the land of his birth. He marries uh, the daughter of a man named Jethro, who was a priest in Midian. And he lives in Midian for another 40 years before God calls him back to Egypt. And so in many ways, this is the end of Act Two, Moses kills this Egyptian. He makes his second exodus, fleeing Egypt for the land of Midian. And so with all of this in mind, this, this story of Moses and where he comes from and who he is, it could be that you're thinking, you know, this stuff in the Old Testament, I mean, it's kind of interesting as a story, but, but I don't really understand what it means for my life. I, I don't really understand what it has to do with me other than just me kind of knowing more about what happens in the Bible. I don't really know how this impacts my life. So in our remaining few minutes, I just want to emphasize a few things in, in hopes of giving you uh, some insight into the ways that God maybe wants to use his holy scripture um, to impact your life. Uh, first of all, this is not just the story of Israel. This is not just the story of Moses. This is also our story. This is also your story because this is ultimately the story of how we get to Christ, right? This gives us the foundation. It sets the stage for who God is, for how God operates, for what he is like. And ultimately, we come to the fulfillment of all of these promises, which is Jesus Himself. And as we've said, even at this point, we are getting glimpses of what is to come in Christ. Exodus is the story of how God rescues his people. But the rescue found in Exodus was only temporary. And so a greater eternal rescue and rescuer was still yet to come. Also, this is our story in the sense that we act in the same ways that we will see Israel act 
in this story. For example, we will see God do incredible things and then the people will just totally turn their back on him, right? We will see God rescue them from slavery and then they will complain about the food they have. We will see him give them victory in battle even though they are in no way trained fighters and the next thing we know, they're bowing down before a golden calf. And this is us as well. Sometimes we may be guilty of reading this and going, what a bunch of idiots. And yet this is exactly what we do as well. We struggle to be obedient. We struggle to see past ourselves and our most immediate wants and needs. We struggle to not make idols of worldly things. We struggle not to bow down at the feet of money or career or power or authority or comfort. We struggle to actually give God glory and honor for the incredible things that he has done in our lives. We struggle to not complain and grumble when things don't go as we want. We are no different than the Israelites that we meet in the pages of Exodus. God has literally saved us from the slavery of sin and death, but to look at many of our lives, you wouldn't know something so significant had happened for us. These guys get out in the wilderness, out in the desert. They, they see the Red Sea parted. They, they see the armies of Pharaohs decimated. They see the plagues that come on Egypt. They see all of these incredible things, and they get out there and they go, we don't even have any water. Like, have you, have you forgotten what just happened? And yet we do the same thing. Have you forgotten what Jesus has done for you? So this is very much us. We find ourselves in these pages. Next, this is important because the Bible is primarily about God. Like the Bible isn't about me. It isn't about you. It isn't even primarily about Israel. It's primarily about God. Earlier I said that Moses was the main human character in this story today. But God is most certainly the lead actor here. And what's happening is that God is revealing himself to us. We learn a great deal about what God is like in Exodus, what he desires, what he values, what he wants from us. So if you're someone who desires to know God, if you're somebody who desires to follow God in your life, then you can't bypass this. And and also let us not forget that, that we clearly see here that God is a God who remembers and keeps his promises that he is faithful, and that that hasn't changed. Like that the same thing is true today. If the Old Testament does anything for us, it should show us that God doesn't change his mind, that, that his character doesn't change, that what he desires doesn't change, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why can't you trust him now when there is so much evidence that tells us he is faithful and good? When there is so much evidence that says he keeps his promises. He's not like a trickster, right? He's not a charlatan. He doesn't tell people one thing and then do something else entirely. No, no, no. God is steady throughout. 
And so the Old Testament should point us to that truth and should give us confidence in trusting him now. We get to the end of chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that. God knew. God knew everything. God knew the intricacies of what was going on. He knew the heart of Pharaoh, we will see. He knew his people. He knew their enslavement. He knew their punishment. He knew. And God remembered his covenant. And then finally, this is important to us because you, you are Moses. And I am Moses. The story of Moses is the story of how God calls a regular person to be his ambassador. Moses does not have a great backstory. He doesn't seem to be an especially spiritual person early on. He's a murderer. He's an exile. And yet, God calls him to represent God, not only before Pharaoh, but before the entire nation of Israel. And Moses was able to do this, not because he was gifted enough or talented enough. He was able to do this because God empowered him to do it. God gives him what he needs. God gives him direction. You also have been called by God to serve as his ambassador. To your family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to the world around you. You have also been sent into situations where people are not following God where people don't even know who he is. And you have been sent as his emissary in his name to accomplish his will and purposes. You are Moses, and I am Moses. And you haven't been called to do this because of who you are, but actually in spite of who you are. Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. And much like we will see Moses do later on, many of us are making excuses for not fully embracing and engaging the calling that God has placed on our lives. You know the story of Moses. You know that he goes, no way. No way. How could I ever do that? And it's quite possible that you're doing the exact same thing right now in your life. No way, God. That's ridiculous. How could I ever do that? Where, where would we ever get the money to do that? How, how could I ever step into that situation and be the person you've... No way. And yet, God has called you, and God is empowering you with his Holy Spirit, and God is sending you to be his ambassador, his emissary, and accomplish his purposes in your life. And I'll leave you with this thought today. God is sovereign, which means God can do whatever he wants. 
whenever he wants, however he wants, wherever he wants. God is in complete control. And yet, the example of Scripture from early on is that God wants to use you to accomplish his work. This is fascinating. God could have freed the Israelites through any number of means, right? God could have, you know, just blown the whole thing up and said, get out of here. All the Israelites just drop dead suddenly. I mean, God could have done anything, and yet he calls this guy, this flawed exile, to go back to Egypt as, at this point, an 80-year-old man, at least, to demand the release of God's people as God's ambassador. God desires to use normal, everyday human beings to accomplish his purposes. Again, why? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why God would want to use you or me. It doesn't really make sense because of who we are and the things we've done in our lives. And yet, it's exactly what he does. God could make disciples of Jesus through any number of means, and yet he sends us, the church, into his world with that task. And, and, and what, what we get an overwhelming sense of in Exodus is that what God most wants is for us to just trust him. Just trust me. Just trust me. Even when things are really hard, even when you feel like you don't have what you need, trust me because I am good and I don't fail. I'm always faithful. God wants us to trust him and be obedient to his call. You might call that faith. Right? You might call that faith. So this morning, as we begin walking down the road of Exodus, as we dig deeper into this book over the next season, I want you to keep this in your mind, that this isn't just about a group of people that lived thousands of years ago that really has nothing to do with us, that these aren't dumb people who just couldn't get it together. I I want you to see yourself in these pages. I want you to recognize that, that this is the story that's been repeating itself throughout human history. And that the beauty that we uh, live in a world today, now where, where Jesus has come, should not be lost on you in the midst of this. That God has fulfilled this ultimate promise to send his only son to die so that we might have real life so that we might be forgiven of our sins, so that we might be reconciled to him, and so that we might be with him forever is incredible. And so if you're here this morning, um, we're about to enter into a time of communion, but if you're here this morning and, and, and maybe you're going, look, I've never given my life to Christ. Right? I, I've never stepped out in faith and said, I, I want to follow Jesus with everything that I have. Then, then why leave here this morning without seeking to make that kind of a commitment. Uh, I'm going to be in the back here in just a minute. I think Luke and Jason will be in the back as well. And so if you want to talk with somebody about what, what does it mean to actually follow Christ with my life? What does it mean to actually bring my life under his authority and to seek to trust him and be obedient to him? Then we just want to talk with you this morning and, and share the gospel with you and tell you what Jesus is like and pray for you this morning. And so I would encourage you, or even if you just need prayer, you go, man, I, I'm terrible 
at this. Newsflash, we're all terrible at this. Like we're all terrible at trusting him and following him and we need each other to support each other and to bear one another's burdens and to build each other up so that we might follow Jesus better together. So we would love to pray for you this morning if you're going, man, I just need, I need the community of the church this morning and the encouragement that comes from the church this morning in my life. But, but before you do that, let me, let me encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, we want to invite you to his table this morning because there is great encouragement that comes from just gathering and remembering the sacrifice of Christ itself by, by, by taking the bread and the juice and remembering that Jesus died for us right? So that we might be reconciled to God and that Jesus has sent us out. Let us come to the table this morning and be encouraged by that reality that Jesus is alive and real and that he has purpose for us today. Let me pray for us. The band's going to come and lead us, and I want to invite you to come this morning as you feel led. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the goodness of Christ. And we thank you that as we engage your word, even here in Exodus, Father, as we see the story of Moses, as we look at just the historical account of what happens here, that we see glimpses of what is to come. And we see that you are a good God who remembers your promises, who is faithful in all things. I pray this morning, Father God, that you would give us a lens to look at our own lives. Help us to see ourselves for who we really are. Help us to be introspective and to see the ways that we fall short of your glory. Um, Not so that we can be downcast. um, Not so that we could have a low opinion of ourselves, but Father, so that we could have a high opinion of you and see the ways that you love us in spite of who we are. See the ways, God, that you have gone to great lengths to rescue us in the same way that you went to great lengths to rescue Israel. And may we fully trust you. May we seek to honor you in all ways in our lives. May we seek to give you everything and be obedient to the call that you've placed on our hearts. Give us that lens this morning, Father. Encourage us with your body and blood. We thank you for Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.